Before we get started with today's show, I wanted to tell you about another great podcast. ESPN, in partnership with Peyton Manning's Omaha Productions, present Courtside Club. Grab your popcorn and sit courtside with host and influencer Rachel Demita as she chats with the biggest athletes, celebrities, influencers, and creative minds. Rachel and her guests dive into sports, pop culture, and the experiences that made them who they are today. That's Courtside Club. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Right Time. My name is Bomani Jones. Thanks for listening wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. Coming up on this episode of The Right Time, going to talk about what's going on in Wimbledon, talk about what's going on in the world, and the latest installment of The Right Time Book Club with my man Corey Ertman. But first... All right. So, sorry about Friday, guys. Forgot to tell you that we weren't doing Foxworth Friday. That's my fault. I had to go do something. I should have left you with a dope beat step two, set rod, but that's all me. I was going, you know, people start getting antsy when they don't get no podcast, like they ain't getting this for free or nothing. So I normally get a little salty when y'all do that, but I'm like, damn, it's my fault. I didn't let you know what was going on. So while I was gone, apparently, this Kyrie thing, it seems to be coming clear. I just want to throw this out here, right? And you know, you got to be a little bit careful what you say about Kevin Durant because he hear everything. He don't take it well if he thinks you're being unfair. I think he's cool if you disagree, but if he thinks you're being unfair. So I do, I don't mind that actually because it's worth trying your best to be fair. But A, I found it ridiculous. And we talked about this before, all the discussion that somehow what happened with the Warriors is any sort of referendum on Kevin Durant. I didn't believe it then. I don't believe it now. I just don't think that that's an appropriate thing. However, I do think that if he had to do it over again with the Nets, there are some things that he might do differently. I feel comfortable saying that because that's the case with most of us. I don't think he's sitting around stressed and worried and crying about it necessarily, but I do think there's some things that he might do over if he had the opportunity. Anyway, while I was gone, I was having a conversation with somebody and they were talking about something that happened with a friend of theirs and a job and it's one of those, I'd heard X, Y, and Z about this person, but I just, I didn't want to believe it. I wanted to, you know, keep looking at it, you know, through, you know, optimistically. And then in the end, what everybody else had been saying then ultimately did happen, right? It's one of those things. Okay. And my response to this person when I heard this was, the one thing that you can't overlook when anybody says this about somebody you cool with, unreliability and instability. Those are the two things that you just can't look past. The unreliability and maybe a little bit, right? Like you can believe that the tie that binds you to that person is enough to encourage a more reliable behavior. Like I've been in that situation with people, but that's people that I knew that I could look at and be like, hey, you not gonna mess this up, right? And then they ultimately would not, they don't want to mess it up for themselves, but they really don't want to mess it up for me. But they know that I'm going to be the person that press them on that, right? But instability, you can't do nothing about that, right? Like being unreliable is typically a reflection of a disrespect for the people you have to deal with. It's like people who are late all the time. They're disrespectful of your time. But there are inducements that you can put in place very often to make sure that somebody gets there on time, for example, and all of those things, right? Like you got to put in some strong consequences or whatever, but you can do things that force people to be reliable. You can't make people be stable. Nobody wants to be unstable, right? Nobody at all. The homie's Roll Russell, I saw he put a clip up of some of his comedy. This was really funny. We talked about uh, being diagnosed as bipolar. And he said, they told me I was bipolar. He's like, I didn't think I was bipolar. I just thought I was a real bleep who didn't take nothing off of nobody. <laughs> right? Like, unless he were able to acknowledge the bipolar part, he was always, in his mind, just going to be a real one. You see what I'm saying? Right. So if the unstable person has some acknowledgement of the fact that they're unstable and they're making some steps toward it, then you got a chance. But if they just out here just like, yo, what's going to happen today? You can't do nothing about that. Right. I'm not even saying that necessarily as a judgment of Kyrie Irving. I'm just saying that if you in that place, you can't do anything about it. 
I'm going to look this up again just to make sure I don't hit you with the wrong number. But Gabe, I saw something that said, how many games do you think regular season that Kyrie Irving has played as a Brooklyn Net? It is, this is 74 plus 29. Yeah, so the number I heard was 34 per season. That's what they've gotten out of three years of Kyrie Irving is 34 games per season, right? Now, some of that is about injury, but that goes to the reliability part. Before we even get to the COVID end of the reliability part, 34 games per year is what they've gotten out of Kyrie Irving. And again, the dude took a personal leave of absence that coincidentally was around the time of his birthday. This is just not a reliable dude. And so Durant hitched his wagon to a dude who seemed to be unreliable. And if you would have asked the people in Boston at the end of his time there, also unstable. This is a lesson for everybody else. Kevin Durant going to do what he do. I'm very curious what his plan is or what he sees as the thing to do after this, by the way. But you can't overlook unreliability and instability when you're talking about your people. If you go get them a job. Now, Durant didn't really get him a job per se, but he, he can't say he, I mean, he kind of got him that job, right? But when you go work with your homies and working with your homies is tricky, what seems to be the case, Durant doesn't really seem to have beef with Kyrie over this. I don't know if he has beef with anybody over this, to be fair, but I got no indication that he's got a real beef with Kyrie over this. The word is, okay, well, then Kevin Durant's going to ask for a trade, maybe. Trade where? And a serious question, what do you give up for Kevin Durant? Because while I talk this about how many games that Kyrie Irving has played in the last three seasons, let's go look up how many games Kevin Durant has played. And also keep in mind, it's very easy to forget, Kevin Durant is going into his 16th season in the NBA. So yeah, the last three seasons, Kevin Durant has played 90 games. Now, of course, one of those, he missed the whole season for the Achilles, but that means that he's a dude going into his 16th year, who has suffered an Achilles tear. Just how much are you willing to give up? Because if you're a Kevin Durant away from a championship, then absolutely you do it, right? But I would not look at Durant as a long-term play. Again, I've been saying this for a long time. Don't get LeBron James out here fooling you into thinking these dudes can play forever, right? I don't think that's a long-term play. So what does he do if Kyrie leaves? What does he do if Kyrie stays and it just proves to be such an untenable situation? What do you do if you're him? That, to me, is way more interesting than the Kyrie part. Like, the Kyrie part, he Kyrie, and he going to beat Kyrie. Wherever it is he winds up, he going to beat Kyrie. If he stays there, however it goes. But stay or go, what would the flow chart look like if you're Kevin Durant on all the various if-then statements and where you decide to go and how you decide to handle the rest of your career based on this? Because, look, he wanted to go play somewhere different. Don't blame him, right? He thought Kyrie was the guy to play with. I could understand it. I wouldn't have done it, but I could understand it. I think he likes living in New York. I can totally understand that. Like there are all these things. Kevin Durant coming to the Nets, while not necessarily being the decision I would have made, it made a lot more sense. But I think part of it for him was you don't want to go to the Knicks because the Knicks are chaos. But then you imported the chaos with your homeboy. Like it's hard to be like, no, I don't want to be part of that organization. And then you get Kyrie, right? Because here's the thing. The Knicks, they don't necessarily do it, but at least the Knicks could fire some people and try to bring in some stability. Kyrie can't fire nobody. He the he, he, he nobody. He the he, he body. He can't fire the people. He the people. So let's see how this plays. Let's see how this ultimately goes because it's going to be a pretty uneventful free agency season, I imagine, which is a good thing, I think, right? Not so bad to have people actually stay with the teams they play for and have the continuity between seasons. I'm okay with that part. Like, I think the NBA almost would be better off if the free agency was less interesting and then we could lock in on the teams that we're growing familiar with. I think that that could work out. And all that being said, Kevin Durant might be out there on the market for somebody to get. Did you see the Photoshop that Lillard posted on his IG? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And I'm like, look, dang, the weed ain't that good out there. Like, first of all, what y'all got to give up? That's number one. And Dave Litter's like, oh, yeah, we're going to put this Kevin Durant jersey on him. Let me tell you what it's going to take to get Kevin Durant from the Nets. Dame Lillard, you're going to have to come over here, buddy. Like, Anthony Simons is not going to be enough to headline that trade. 
I'm going to be honest with you. I don't even remember who else played for y'all. Not quite sure. All I know is it's not Myers Leonard. He don't play for nobody. Other than that, I'm not really sure. But hey, man, if Durant's out there, if I am the Denver Nuggets, that's the team where I'm like, yo, you go find a way. Can you imagine if somehow they were able to get out there with Jokic, Michael Porter, Jamal Murray, and Kevin Durant? So make it Jokic, Kevin Durant, and then one of those two guys, whichever one. Oh, man, we might be canceling Christmas. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training, just in time for summer and warmer days. I've been in the gym a little bit trying to get my fitness in check so I can break these skinny allegations I keep getting. Spring is the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering off. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your training plan in mind. Personalize your workout. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute core session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance. Peloton classes are designed to help focus on your needs and goals while challenging yourself at every level. Now you can catch up on your favorite NBA games with NBA League Pass while you push yourself to new levels of fitness. Watch your favorite games and win your workouts with NBA League Pass on Peloton and visit OnePeloton.com. Peloton all-access membership and NBA League Pass subscription required. So there's a lot going on in the world since the last time I talked to you. I am going to get to some of that, but, I mean, you guys know. I know how place I work operates. I know what I can and cannot say, right? I also think, by and large, you may know my overall macro views on some things, but I am going to stick on this to what is factually true, right? What we can't argue with. Now, I'm going to get back to that, but I want to start by talking about Wimbledon coming up, okay? So if you haven't seen this story, Wimbledon wants to bar Russian and Belarusian players from participating in the tournament. This would result in two of the top 10 players of the men's draw, including the number one player, not being at Wimbledon, and two of the top 20 women's players not being in the draw. Now, the folks at Wimbledon have said that they are doing this because they are afraid that somebody's going to push the Russian propaganda. They don't want to do that. They had thought about asking for written declarations of people basically saying that they're not down with Putin, but they realize that it's asking people to get killed by doing something like that. And just the idea of a purity test is absolutely absurd and ridiculous. But I think the idea of banning these people from competition is absolutely absurd and ridiculous. Like, I might be inclined to view it differently if we were talking about, like, national teams, right? If we're talking about the Olympics, if we're talking about the World Cup, where these players compete under a banner. But that's not the way I look at tennis. Like, maybe technically you are competing under a banner, but that's, you know what I mean? But that's not... That's not where I am about that. I look at that as these are individuals who have the right to their individual views. And by the way, an individual view that they have the right to is I support the Russian war in Ukraine. Like, I think it would be a ridiculous thing to say, but I do think that they get to say it. Like, one frustration that I've had in observing this is, did nobody say that Americans couldn't compete in any competitions based on what was going on with the second Gulf War? The moral foundation of that war, and you can go look at it, we all can acknowledge right now, it was a bit shaky, right? We weren't necessarily operating on fact here. All of those things. Nobody ever made that point that you should stop Americans from competing to send a message to the U.S. Now, you can make the argument that global opinion of that war was certainly higher than the war in Ukraine. That is correct. But the real thing that's going on over there is it's basically... It's like the Detroit t-shirts, man. It's Russia versus everybody, right? Nobody's on Team Russia in what they're doing. And so Western Europe, as they seek to protect themselves and as they wonder about what will happen next, they're trying to use this to draw a line and set it down or whatever it is. Okay, again, I do not agree with this. But what I find, and this is something that's also happening in this discussion of the Live Golf Tour, When we got a country that we can point to that is a bad guy or in the discussion you're having, 
the bad guy. We really get out here high-horsing about human rights. Which, by the way, I get, right? Like, I understand logically. Like, if we just do all this stuff in a vacuum, I get where we're coming from in doing that and the belief that sport can help influence human rights in those directions, all that. I totally 100% get it. It's just that we're always taking stands against some version of them, right? And the Russians are the white version of them. It ain't a lot of white folks that we call thems, but they are the version of them that is in this. The Saudi Arabians are an obvious, clear them that we can point to, right? That one having a lot to do with not really skin color, but it's about religion as much as anything else that allows us to otherize those people in the name of human rights violations. Okay, now, I brought all that up in the way that I did to get us back to what's going on in our world. And I'm telling you again, I am only going to talk to you about what is factual. Okay. And I also need you to understand that I am trained as an economist. So I can think of things very often in cold, somewhat clinical terms. Right. But I think that's going to be helpful in this one because, again, I really want to stick to what is factual. This is factual. Okay. There will always be a demand for abortions. Whether you think abortion is right or wrong, it's always going to be people who want them. You can make it as difficult as humanly possible for someone to get an abortion, but a significant proportion of that population that wants abortions one way or another is going to get them right now i'm not simply talking about the people who will have the means and access to be able to say cross state lines in order to go get an abortion somewhere where it is legal because not everybody can do that i'm talking about the people that are going to be willing to throw themselves down flights of stairs I'm going to be talking about the people who are going to be willing to do horribly unsafe things in the name of having an abortion. Look at the ridiculous things that people are willing to do for plastic surgery. Right? Think about what people are willing to do to get a bigger butt. The laws they're willing to break, the un the, the uncertified or whatever the word is, things they're willing to do to go down that road. Right? That's what people are willing to do for something that is that superficial you not really going to be able to make people have babies that they don't want to have, right? Like you just kind of have to acknowledge that as a baseline fact when you get into this discussion, right? So to me, the discussion about whether or not abortion should or should not be legal in this country, to me is a question of, do you want abortions to take place at hospitals or at healthcare centers, or do you want them to take place on floors? Right. Do you want them to take place through horrible, terrifying means that people come up with themselves? Because that's that's the end game on this. Whether you like it or not, that's what this is going to do. It's going to make this country a lot more unsafe for a lot of people. Now, you can make the argument, well, that's what they get, da da da. If that's what you want to do, if that's the way you want to see it. That's your opinion. It's an opinion that I disagree with, but that is your opinion. But it doesn't change the ultimate bottom line, right? Like we make drugs illegal to try to stop people from using them because we think they are ultimately harmful to those people. But in the end, the prohibition of a lot of those drugs hasn't worked out the way you thought it would, has it? It hasn't gone in the way that you did. And in the end, that winds up ultimately being more harmful on a macro level and has resulted in a whole lot of people getting thrown in jail who didn't need to be in jail, so forth and so on. All of that, right? Like we put people in a position to make their lives worse in the name of something you're not going to be able to stop, by and large. That's what you got here, right? Based on that fact, and just so you know, this is the same, very similar to my feeling on the death penalty. To me, the death penalty is not a moral argument. It's the fact that we're not good enough at deciding who did or did not commit a crime. Therefore, the stakes of killing people is just a little bit too high for us to be like, oh, damn, we might have got that one wrong, right? 
that's the fundamental premise that I have in my opposition to the death penalty, right? Before I get to the morals of it, I tend to look fundamentally at what we got here. And what I see fundamentally with the abortion situation, view it in the context of human rights. View it in the context of the fact that the opposition to abortion is the minority opinion. That is not the majority opinion, right? Like, by the, if you go look at the polls and everything by now, the American public, by and large, believes that abortion should be legal. They do, right? Whole number of reasons we can get into about that, but the American public believes it should be, and now it's not. And it's going to result in a lot of hardship for a lot of people. Keeping in mind that there are some, like, was an ectopic pregnancy, for example. You can Google exactly what it is. It can kill a woman, and the way you correct for it is via an abortion. Like, that's the treatment. You're making that illegal in these places, which by definition means you're telling people they have to die. Again, I'm sticking with what is factually true about this, all right? And this is what this country has decided that it is going to do against what I believe to be all measures of good sense and to a degree, when you think about that specific example, out of line with what most of us would consider a certain level of decency. And ain't nobody telling us that we can't go to Wimbledon. That's all I'm saying, right? The stakes to what's happening here, they're really, really, really big, right? The magnitude of what this is, is huge, 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 huge. But nobody points their fingers at it in this direction because that's not what they do to us as a nation, right? America is not under constant referendum of its own morality on these matters. But if you just look at the function of what we're doing and what we're talking about, it might speak to the morality, right? And I say this as a person who's not religious, all of these things, right? You can start with what you think is right or wrong and then go the other direction. I don't blame people for that, right? Like I get where they're coming from largely. But I ask you on this to start from the logic. And if you start from the logic, where do you wind up? You come up with your own conclusion after you do that. But it's right there. And at some point, you're probably going to have to ask yourself, why am I just willing to say, yeah, some people maybe just got to die? Because that's what we're doing. Yeah, 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 I get it, I get it, I get it, yeah, yeah, but you know what, hey, somebody got to die, I guess. That's what we're saying here. That is where we are. And to me, that is a bit of a national crisis. And I think to me, that is one that is worthy of a measure of judgment. Right? Now, do I think it would be right to judge every American that wants to compete in sports about this decision? No, I don't. I think it would be ridiculous because not every individual gets to speak on this, right? And that's the same reason I say you just got to let them Russians over there play. We don't get to pick and choose when we play this game if we going to play this game. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, it is the Right Time Book Club, our annual extravaganza. This year we are doing King of the World by David Remnick. A look at a younger Muhammad Ali. I don't want to say young because then you start thinking it's like young Sheldon or like young Batman or something. He's like five years old. But if you have not started the book, you can always get started to come check out the podcast later. We had Howard Bryant join us for the first installment of the series. We've got David Remnick, the author, joining us in the next installment. But on the current installment, joining us now, boxing commentator. Check him out on The Zone. Check him out all over the place talking about boxing. And, of course, long live the morning Jones. Corey Erdman, what's going on, man? Hey, it's been too long since we've done this, but I feel out of place with this lineup of guests. You know, I feel like my numbers are going to be a little <laughs> little bit lower than uh than brian and remnick oh no nah, you the crew man like and for people <laughs> who don't know man i saw you i was at in vegas and i'm just walking down a hallway and then i look up and i'm like yo it's Corey." but i got a mask on so i just run up like a crazy person <laughs> as everybody tries to figure out who is this crazy person running up on Corey urban and then i had to slowly uh acknowledge my presence and then it was one of the happier moments i recall having in quite a long time it was one of the best surprises uh of my lifetime yeah that was uh, <laughs> i mean i don't know how we didn't know we were in the same hotel 
same casino at the same time, but uh, as, that's on us. Oh, yeah, it's because I don't tell people when I go out of town. Yeah, that's yeah, how I don't, uh, it <laughs> yeah. wound up. It <laughs> wound up going that way. I don't even know that my like extended family knows what I do for a living, you know. So I, I people, <laughs> you know, I post on Instagram sometimes where I've been, but not not all that often. <laughs> well, also, I think who was probably more surprised that day were all the Canelo fans who were walking around looking sad. <laughs> yeah, that was a uh, that was one of the weirder atmospheres for like a big fight. And Bomani is referring to uh, the Canelo Alvarez Dimitri Bivol fight recently, where Canelo lost. He was upset. And it was kind of a, a fight that a lot of people assumed that Canelo was just going to walk over this guy and then get to the, the Triple G fight, to the trilogy. And he lost in not a particularly dramatic way, just got thoroughly outclassed. And throughout, people, as as both, as you just said, just solemnly walked out, you know, with armfuls of merchandise, just solemnly walk out of the arena. <laughs> and you, you don't see that that often in boxing because and this will, we'll get into this with Ali, it's not often that you find a figure in boxing where people are generally fans of boxing in general. They're fans of the sport. They'll go to fights, but they're not fans of one individual figure like they are with Canelo or like they were with Ali. So you see this in team sports when people go to see their teams win and they don't and they walk out sadly. But to see it from a boxing match is definitely a, a different level of sadness. Look, I was just glad that Canelo lost to a white dude because I didn't want no confusion as to whether or not they thought I had beef. You know what I'm saying? Like, it can get a little dicey um, on them Cinco de Mayo weekend fights. Floyd Mayweather primed them people up to view this in a way that I simply do not. Like, no, nah, I'm not involved in that. Nope, but nope. we got king of the world here. And we're dealing with the second half of the book. We're going to talk to David Remnick about the epilogue of the book. But one thing that is always interesting about this portion of the story is either the fearlessness or insanity that it took for the way that Muhammad Ali dealt with Sonny Liston, the scariest man on earth, like the Mike Tyson of his day, basically, if Mike Tyson broke legs for the mob. Right, and it worked because by the second fight, Liston winds up fearing Ali. But one thing that you realize as you read this book and you read in-the-moment accounts of Ali, especially in this period, is... You know, we've been hyper exposed to Ali. Like he's the most publicized athlete in in history. We've we've all read about Ali. We've all seen him. But usually, Ali's kind of uh, he's distilled down to a couple sound bites. You know, like we we remember the "I'm the King of the World" speech. We remember all that. But when you read it in the moment, like Ali was an he was an absurd character, Bo. Like, like you know, commissioning a bus and stalking Sonny Liston and showing up at his house. And, and, you know, like hounding him around town like that's that that's a level of uh, absurdity that no athlete before or since has ever taken on in the name of both promotion and intimidation of his opponent. Like no one's ever come close. And I don't know that anyone ever will. Hold on. And he did that when he was nobody. Right? right? Like, that was not the Muhammad Ali that we know. And you're like, oh, he just does stuff like that. This is before the world really had any idea who he was. And he runs up on Sonny Liston's house in the middle of the night with a bus and a bunch of people in tow. And for Sonny Liston, I never got the feeling Sonny Liston cared about promotion or anything like that. He just beat people up. And that's what he was here for. Yeah, he was. Uh, I mean, he almost hated that part of it, right? He didn't really want to talk to people. And he was understandably distrustful of the press that that had written about him a particular way um except in you know in one of the interesting things about this fight as, as remnick points out is that sonny liston becomes the baby face in this fight clay at this point ali is the heel and sonny doesn't really know how to deal with that and certainly doesn't know how to deal with all of this attention that ali is basically forcing upon him uh, against his will yeah, I mean, because I guess Sonny fit an archetype that may have been frightening in ways to white people, but wasn't like actually terrifying like Ali. Ali was, was, was in a different space that I think felt it was a familiar discomfort. Like Sonny is like, oh my God, he's a scary person. Ali was actually somebody that you might encounter. Like as long as you paid your debts, you wouldn't go run up on Sonny Liston. It's like a world of Ali's, I think, scared a lot of people. But also the NAACP was kind of looking at, at Clay like, Hey, I don't know if this is the guy that we want to be on board with either. Right, because he's coming from, I mean, Joe Lewis was sort of the archetype for how the press at that time wanted a, a black athlete to act. And especially the, the being basically, you know, the the last, well, and, and Patterson as well. And that's like, just take a, a detour here. 
I thought it was brilliant how Patterson is kind of a central figure in this book, right? Like Patterson and how he sort of sets the stage for Ali and what's expected of an athlete and a boxer at that point, and then turns out to, to be Ali's nemesis and then comes all the way back around. Um, that is, is really fascinating uh, in this book and learning even more. And obviously I've read uh, plenty about Patterson as well, but um, for people who aren't familiar with Patterson, like he's as fascinating a figure, at least in this book, uh, as Ali is actually. Yeah, it was just, I mean, we talked about this with Howard, just so sad, right? Like the idea that the heavyweight champion of the world viewed himself this way. But I guess that can also happen when you fight somebody from another country for the heavyweight championship and America roots against you. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, they, they root against you. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, you learn as you read in this book too, like people think of, you know, Lewis Schmeling one in particular as kind of, as this fight that oh all Americans are on Joe Lewis's side, and that's not true. There were some newspaper writers that were saying, "Oh, this is proof that uh, white people are superior." Because look, Max Schmeling <laughs> just stopped him. Um, yeah, like Patterson is an incredibly sad and tragic figure, but I think that he, especially because of the you know the Gay Talese profiles of him, but also what Patterson himself wrote. I think that he's really he became very important for people understanding the psyche of an athlete and the vulnerability of an athlete. And I don't think even since, you know, we, we, we talk about mental health a lot and we, we encourage athletes and we praise them for when they, when they speak about things that they're going, going through, no one's been quite as open as Floyd Patterson was. And I think that he was probably very instructive for people in humanizing athletes and especially fighters and understanding actually what they're going through mentally because i'm sure there are other fighters that dealt with these things the same way that floyd patterson did but they didn't admit to it the way that he did right and of course you know as we deal with this book we deal with ali just absolutely embarrassing patterson and cruelly destroying him in the ring and i think in an interesting thing about this book and the time frame that they took and it's so good that shortening the time frame allowed for much more of a like molecular discussion of everything that had taken place but you are i mean i don't know anybody who knows as much about boxing as you do context with history and time and everything one thing i think that can be difficult for us to really fully appreciate from this distance in time is just how good muhammad ali was in that period between when he beat liston and when he has his license revoked for deciding to not go to the war, because that adds the context of what we lost from those years that he wasn't there. But just how good was that young version of Ali approaching prime? So it's funny because, you know, as I was rereading this book, I had to I had to get it out of storage. Look how haggard the this people can't see it, but I had to go <laughs> get it out and, uh, and reread this. I, you know, took the time to watch some of Ali's fights from that period as well. And I think athletes in general, but I think more particularly boxers on film don't always age that well aesthetically. When you go back and watch old fights, you might see some little things, some little nuance that, that you know, has kind of been carried over. But a lot of times you'll see older fighters and, and think there's no way they could compete in today's boxing landscape, right? Like the athletes have just gotten better for all the reasons that we understand. That is not the case when you go back and watch Ali. <laughs> Ali is still dazzling to go back and watch. For a, a man of his size to be moving the way that he did and to have the the offensive variety that he had, it, it, he's mesmerizing to watch even today in 2022. And again, like fighters in particular aesthetically don't always age that well. But Ali really did, and and I think you've also pointed this out too. And I think one of one of the things that has made uh, Ali so endearing and contributed to his fame is just how aesthetically pleasing he is, how photogenic he is, right? Like as he's boxing and he's talking, even in you take any still moment of any Ali fight, and it's like the perfect picture, right? It's like the Neil Leifer right. picture of him standing over Sonny Liston, like that happened in real time. Ali, his facial <laughs> expressions, he's just. When you're watching him, it's like you're watching someone acting while also being the the greatest athlete on the planet at that time. 
Yeah, like he's almost, to me, almost like a Kevin Durant figure, right? Like how in the world is there a seven-foot point guard? Because when you go back and watch the heavyweights of that day or like talk about Joe Lewis, right? Because I think a book that lends itself well to comparison here was Randy Roberts' Hard Times, man. Yes, just to give you book. a chance to see, yeah. which was a Corey Urban recommendation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to give you a look at, Joe Lewis was hitting you with hands of lead and concrete, right? Just this raw power and these incredible painful punches. This is a heavyweight that's moving like a middleweight, right? Like the the appeal of this is less the power than the movement. And you correct me if I'm wrong. I can't think of any of his contemporaries or the guys before that that were even doing anything like he was. Except like maybe Patterson, but Patterson was a much smaller man. Yeah, no one looked quite like Ali. Like, of course, there were some kind of like movers and and defensive specialists and like Jimmy Ellis, who came up with Muhammad Ali, adopted kind of a similar style. But one of the reasons uh, why Ali looked different is the fighters that he idolized. Of course, he looked up to, to Joe Lewis to an extent, but he really idolized Sugar Ray Robinson. But more specifically, he idolized Johnny Bratton, who was a welterweight from the Chicago area at that time who wound up winning a the welterweight bout i wrote an article about bratton for vice a couple of years ago that kind of looked into how bratton has been kind of underappreciated over the years in terms of both his ring style but also his aesthetics the the driving through town in the cadillac and the, and the entourage the outsized personality a lot of that was borrowed by ali that's kind of where he learned that was from bratton and from robinson so his influences were drastically different from the fighters of his era and you know he wound up just imagining a way of fighting as a heavyweight that no one had thought of before. He's he's entirely aesthetically different from any one of his contemporaries. Right. Now let's talk about the life of Ali while not fighting, right? Because one thing that is interesting about this book, and I was like, wow, credit to you, David Remnick, because I'm not sure I would have been willing to put this in the book. I think it's the story of him talking to Angelo Dundee, trying to explain the Nation of Islam. And he starts yes. talking about, you know, the the spaceship and everything else like that and Dundee. And I think it's interesting. I think that that conversation probably informed Dundee's ability to kick it with Ali, given the stuff he was saying, because he was just like, oh, this is so OK, whatever. <laughs> yeah, aliens got it. OK, now nah, we cool. We cool. Right. Like people trying to talk to Ali and really like, but, you know, you don't hate white people, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, devils, da, da, da. Like it's this whole hodgepodge of stuff. And I think about it in the context of Ali where. For the world, he was a leader on the war, but he was unquestionably a follower as related to the nation. The nation only had room for followers and Elijah Muhammad. And I've always just been fascinated by that duality. Is basically he's the most courageous soldier that we could think of. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that, you know, Dundee might, he, he was kind of a perfect person for that moment just because he didn't care. I, there were a lot of other trainers that, <laughs> that would have seen how Ali was acting at that point. Um, and, and heard that and just said, I, I, I can't possibly, I can't deal with this guy. And also the way that he fought, because again, going back to how he was operating in the ring, almost everyone in the boxing community thought he was a fraud, you know, who thought you can't possibly win like that. So both personally and professionally, Dundee was accepting of, of who Ali was. He was able, as you said, to just kind of, you know, shoo all that away. Yeah. Okay. Spaceship's cool, whatever. But I, I'm seeing a fighter who's very clearly special to me and, and was able to just ride with it. Pro- I mean, and, and Ali lost trainers, but, you know, Archie Moore wasn't willing to, to put up with that, right? Like, he, it had to be Dundee seemingly in that moment for Ali to become Ali. And both of them could see the humanity in each other, right? Like, in spite of all of this, I think that's one of the, like, Ali's emotional intelligence. Because when we talk about just, I don't know the what we're going to call the other kind of intelligence, right? But kind of like just the straight-ahead intelligence. What was Ali's seventh from last in his high school class of like 350 people or something like that? Part of why he got such a poor status from the draft board at first, I think he was a Y1, is because that wasn't a dude that could take tests. Like, he wasn't that mm-hmm. guy. But his grasp on dealing with people was always so fascinating. And I find that interesting in thinking about what a polarizing figure he happened to be. Like, I think about him in some ways, like if he had died in 1965, that Ozzie Davis obit, uh, you know, eulogy of, of Malcolm X, right? You know, but did he ever smile at you, all of that stuff? It would have almost been seen as counter, but we, Ali lived long enough that that became a defining characteristic of his personality. But in that time where he is like in the wilderness basically 
it kind of works for him because while so many people hated him, he was just so magnetic that they, now you're doing the college gigs, right? Just enough to keep the lights on, but it can only happen if what Ali, I guess the question is, would Ali have been so disliked by so many people if he actually wasn't so likable? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Like Ali, Ali was funny, right? So even when he was dealing with people in the moment and most reporters basically, you know, other than like the times at that time didn't like him. But they were willing to be around him because they, you know, they found him amusing. You know, he was he was a charmer and, and he was a performer. Um, and it's funny that you brought that up about kind of the intelligence, so to speak, because I was thinking about that, too. Ali is really instructive when we we think of like different ways that you can be intelligent. You know, there isn't one way, like because when you hear Ali speak, he's incredibly eloquent. He's, he's very he's, he's quick witted. Um, he's educated on the topics that he's that he's talking about, ultimately. But also, yeah, he he fails the the army aptitude test, right? Like he's functionally illiterate as well. And but so there are very different. You can be intelligent and classified as intelligent without having these certain benchmarks that we've determined uh, make you smart or not, right? Yeah, like I feel like with Ali, it's kind of like I say about Charles Barkley. When he gets it right, it works so well because he keeps it so simple. When he gets it wrong, he gets it so wrong because he keeps it so simple, right? It's just <laughs> right. cutting straight to the heart of whatever that thing was the thing that I, the thing that Ali did just really get though were the power dynamics of race he had that one right there down to a T and I think that that's part of what allowed him to be so friendly with so many individual white people right but in the macro he was like oh no 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 let's talk about what happens y'all all get together yeah you yeah I can deal with you two right now like hey the Beatles okay we can do that but if we get the Beatles and the Stones in the room oh boy that's nine might have an issue Right. And that was that that was kind of his overarching mantra. And I think that there was a I'm not going to remember the specific quote, but he was even later in life. Um, he was talking about, you know, one of his goals was that he wanted to be like the one black man that white people didn't get. So even when it was always on his terms, as you mentioned, he knew how to deal with the white reporters. He knew how to charm them. But it was because he wanted to. You know, he, he never he never decided to kind of let them dictate the terms of how they were communicating. And that that colored his interactions, I think, throughout his, his entire life, I would say. Let's try to imagine, given that we had the Colin Kaepernick situation in 2016, right? So we have seen something somewhat similar to Ali deciding that he's not going to go to the war. And again, let us not forget immediately winning the championship and then telling the world, by the way, I didn't just go Muslim. I went Muslim. I went with these guys. Yes, these the hate that hate produced per Mike Wallace, right? I went with these guys. Yeah, that's who, yeah, may I, Malcolm X, he down with us, right? This, this is who I kick it with. And then to have his license stripped by everybody while he is standing with the Nation of Islam through all of this, can you imagine any of that happening now and in this era i mean it was a giant big deal and he took the weight of everything at that time but can you imagine if that had happened in say like 2017 like shortly after trump is elected president oh I, yeah, yes i can because as you mentioned <laughs> I, it would pretty closely mirror what happened at the time the one thing that you really get a, a feel of when you read this book um and in the, the title King of the world, you know, obviously it's an alley phrase, but it's it also kind of functions as sort of the thesis of this book, which is that Remnick really puts you in the world uh, in which Ali really is the focal point at that time. Like, I, I think that we kind of forget all these things are happening. Like, he meets the Beatles. Um, there's death threats going on, assassination threats uh, looming over his fights. Uh, Malcolm X is a part of his story. Elijah Muhammad is a part of his story. The JFK assassination, all these things. And he's like one, if not directly connected to these things, he's one degree separated from them. He is the very nucleus of the world at that time. And he ultimately becomes king of it and declares it in the ring. It's, it's, you, you forget just how central to American life Muhammad Ali was at this point, uh, and, and really until, until you read this book and kind of relive it in real time. Well, to great flex that I think is underrated as flex is Sam Cook. Come on up here, Sam Cook. Sam Cook, one of the great <laughs> rock and roll singers. This dude is telling Sam Cook. Right. A dude that, again, people don't even really know at this point. Now, of course, people don't realize just how deep that sort of thing is here. 
But I also think, and I, this isn't something the book really gets into, but is an underrated detail. If you like, did you watch uh, One Night in Miami? So I haven't watched it yet. No, but I, I've read the okay. reviews. Yeah. So one of my great frustrations with it is their characterization of Sam Cooke, and they tried, they used Sam Cooke to be the reflection of the person who needed to be pushed over the top to like get into the revolutionary spirit, right? Like they used him as the vehicle for that. But what bothered me about it was. By the time you get to this fight in 1964, Sam has already recorded the live uh, at the Harlem Square Club live album, which was done in Miami, which is him intentionally blackening his music up and making the decision that he wants to speak to his people. Like he's already starting to make the moves to try to put together his own, like basically record company, but collective to own the masters and everything else. Like he has already taken on a very what is honestly a revolutionary stance for the sort of black capitalism they try to engage in in the music industry. And him being there with Ali is actually an interesting mile marker that this giant pop star is actually, if he had lived longer, about to be on the front lines of the revolution in a way. And Ali right there, little do we know, is about to be on the front lines of a revolution starting the next day. Right. Those two guys right there in that moment, people have no idea when they're looking at it. But both of them have a plan to basically disrupt everything that you know about the worlds that they're in. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and obviously we know kind of what ultimately happens between Ali and Malcolm X, which uh, Blood Brothers, speaking of Randy Roberts, another great book that if you really like this one, I would dive into that also. Um, But then Ali kind of says some bad things about Jim Brown, too. Like all of those people kind of go in very odd directions in relation to one another after that as well. So. You know, you and I talk about this a lot, and we both push back anytime somebody says the whole boxing is dead thing. And it's like, look, if I tell you it's going to be a big fight, you don't even know who those people are. And you're going to go to the fight party, whatever it is, right? Like this, the nature of this sport, it's not going to die. But there are more options, more things for people to watch. And so it's hard to be as preeminent as it was. Muhammad Ali was the most... Like, would you argue that he was probably the most, I mean, I don't think it's probably, he was the most famous man in the world by the time he has his license strip. I can't think of how anybody, because yes. I can't think of anybody else that mattered all over the world at that point. Yeah, and I would say, I, I like having this conversation too. Would you say that Ali is one of the five or 10 most famous people like in the world even today? Yes. Yeah, probably, right? It's gotta be. Yeah, I don't think I don't think there's any place in the world you can go where people don't know who Muhammad Ali is. Right. Right. If you hold up a picture of this person. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because like people discount Africa when they talk about this sort of stuff. Right. Like whatever. Like I said, a buzz about boxing. They're like, you know, nobody in America cares about boxing. I'm like, well, we just acting like these Mexicans ain't here. You know what I'm saying? Like we just gonna, right, we're just going right. to act like these people that come to Vegas for all these fights. Like like they're they're not all catching international flights, guys. Right. Like like. There is there is an affection. People care about boxing. But like you think about Africa, Muhammad Ali is that guy, right? Like you think about this happening in the 1960s in this move. It he's the when we talk about the context of King of the World, it is building his starter for people who are fighting for their own liberation in all these other places. And that's why like the Rumble in the Jungle is the culmination of that back, basically, right? The prodigal son has returned. Poor George Foreman. They don't know nothing about him. All they know is that he's fighting Ali bad guy boom right and and yeah that's the thing is that ali sets a benchmark for uh popularity and import in boxing that you can't like you probably can't ever live up to right like we're talking about ali's fights being they're a national and international discussion and not just because of the fights but you know you think of these two fights and people are worrying about ali winning because like it about what it will say about the superiority of of one's race you know, and and politicians are weighing in on who they want to win a heavy a boxing match, right? Like this. So yeah, of course, boxing can never be. It, it's it's not going to be as important as it was when Muhammad Ali was at the forefront because there's not going to be another Muhammad Ali. I'm right, asking this last thing before we wrap this up. Can you imagine if they had found their Jerry Cooney? in like 1965 to fight Ali, like before the licenses go back, like before we take it, we are going to try to find somebody that could eliminate it. Like, did they just really look around and just say, no, nah, it ain't here. It, it, it ain't, no, nah, this ain't gonna happen. <laughs> I mean, they tried, but uh, but but some of the uh, some of the Jerry Cooties, they uh, it, so it, it's 
some of the white fighters they found were also not American, right? You have like Henry Cooper, you have George Shavalov, who's from, uh, you know, up the street from me here in Toronto. Uh, but yeah. no, they never quite found that great white hope to really challenge him in that era. But I can only imagine what it would have been like if there were a challenger of that Woo! complexion that they actually believe could beat Ali. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, Henry what be Cooper, like. people don't know, Henry Cooper broke Ali's jaw in a yes. fight. And um, Angelo Dundee had to do some shenanigans in order to get it straight so Ali could come back out and ultimately win the fight. But like the movie The Great White Hype where they went and found the guy that had beat the Grim Reaper Roper as an amateur, if someone would have been like, well, he broke his jaw once, that would have been enough to build the promotion. They, you know, they had people thinking Hurricane Peter McNeely could beat Mike Tyson at one time. If they would have brought that white dude over the pond and then he lost, oh, man, it would have been fires in the streets. Because as you know, what set off the biggest race riots in America? Boxing. Was it Jack <laughs> exactly. Johnson? Was it Gene Tunney? Or, or what was the other, whichever the other guy was of the era? Yeah, it was, well, it was Johnson yeah. Jeffries, obviously, sets yeah. off the, uh, the race riot. Sorry. Yeah, but. <laughs> they were setting fires in theaters with black people and locking the doors so they could not get out because they were so bad that Jack Johnson had beaten Jim Jeffries. Yeah, yeah. But then Jack Johnson goes on to kind of be. He's kind of an enemy to Joe Lewis in a way, right? He bets against Joe yeah. Lewis when he faces Schmeling and winds up like working the corner of some fighters to help Joe <laughs> Lewis. So he becomes the enemy to Lewis. And then Lewis, again, is sort of like uh, anti-Ali. It's interesting kind of how, and, and obviously Patterson is in there too. It's it, very interesting how that lineage goes where everyone is kind of against one another until it gets to Ali. And the ironic comparison of the once terrifying Jack Johnson to the then terrifying Muhammad Ali, where Jack Johnson, at, at least Ali could get up there and be like, I'm going to leave your white girls alone, though. No? Jack Johnson out here gallivanting around the world with these white women, and they was not here for that one at all with the gold teeth and everything else. Ali, nope, the whole other direction on all of those things, I actually kind of want to leave y'all alone if you want to be honest about it. Like, damn, y'all don't like that neither? Yeah, 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 a lot, a lot of women, in caps, a lot of women, but se seemingly, at least in this era, none of them white. <laughs> Look, that is my man, Corey Urban. Tell the people where they can check out your work. Uh, every Monday, you can read, uh, I write the lead story on Boxing Scene, uh, so you can check that on BoxingScene.com, uh, and as Bo mentioned, you can hear me on DAZN and ESPN+, and wherever you see boxing airing, I might pop up as your commentator. And for people who do not know, um, hosted a morning show many years ago called The Morning Jones, and Corey was the producer of that show. And that, for those of you who know me, is one of the most important times in my life, in career, in a secondary sort of fashion. And Corey is one of the most important people in all of these things. And it is always just, for me and for a lot of people that are hearing it now, it just always feels good when we can get together, whether we're talking about it here, we're talking about it somewhere else, or just shooting text messages or whatever, man. I'm proud of everything that you are pulling off right now and i know it's only gonna keep rolling man so thank you for helping us with this one but hey ladies and gentlemen thanks so much for joining us here on the right time we do this three times a week gabe bassane handling everything behind the scenes thank you sir remember follow the right time rate us review us give us five stars you only give us four stars i'm inclined to believe you are a hater and we'll talk to you guys in a couple of days take it easy Thanks for checking out The Right Time with Bomani Jones Podcast. You can listen or follow on the ESPN app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Right Time with Bomani Jones.